Good morning, Fellowship. My name is Joel Palpito, and I have the honor and privilege of serving as the student ministry director here on staff. We just got back from our student mission trip, and I am so excited to tell you more about it in the upcoming weeks. But for now, we are looking forward to an incredible time of worship, a time for us to gather in prayer with one another in the body, and an engaging message. Let's get started.
Romans 5.8, but God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ still died for us. Why are we alive this morning? Because Jesus Christ, he is our focus. The reason we're here to worship this morning is all because of him. We are so excited you've chosen to join with us here at Fellowship Bible this morning. If you want to have a seat, we just want to take some time to remind you of a few things. Uh, my name is George Olmstead. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I'd love to get to, to know those of you who are a first-time guest this morning. And a couple of ways we can do that, I'll be in the foyer after service. would love to meet you. But also, if you could, in your bulletin there that you were handed, there's a Connect card. Fill out as much information as you'd like to give us. Tear that out. Present it to our welcome desk on your way out this morning. And we'd love just to give you some more information, uh, a nice little gift, and really just get to know your name. And so we uh, want to connect with you. We also would love to be able to send you a thank you card this week. If you're joining with us online, if you'll just go and hit that connect tab, we'll be able to uh, be in contact with you as well. Thank you for joining us uh, in different parts of the country. We also want to bring to your attention this morning that next Sunday, August 6th, will be a family worship service. What that entails, as you see on the screen, is kindergarten through 12th grade will join their families in worship. We feel it valuable that our children and students worship with us as families in the sanctuary, uh, watching and experiencing uh, how God moves in the lives of their parents and in their uh, grandparents, their, their church family. And so this is an important Sunday for us to do it a few different times throughout the year. So just wanted to remind you to be prepared for that as you come in next Sunday, August 6th. We'll still have early childhood, uh, childhood de- development care. That's from um, newborns to, to, to K-4. So we look forward to having that opportunity. We also want um, you to understand on August 13th, we have an exciting day for our family ministry. That is going to be Promotion Sunday. So every child who is of age will be able to promote to their new classroom and meet their new teachers. And so this is a wonderful opportunity for for us to just celebrate them taking that next step in life and also within the church. And so parents, we also know that change isn't necessarily always the easiest for our children. And so we want you to come prepared for that. We'll help navigate that morning. We'll make it an exciting time and and really uh, help the, the, the children and the students adjust uh, as much as we can. And so it's a wonderful time of celebration. Uh, new classrooms, new teachers, just to kick off that new school year. And so we're excited that will be happening on August 13th. And then our last uh, just announcement this morning is really we've been doing this campaign through the month of July. Uh, it's been entitled Serve Him, Serve Them. Serving Jesus and Serving Others. Listen, I just want you to know um, as one of the pastors here on staff, like, Fellowship Bible does not exist without you. Ministry at Fellowship Bible does not exist without you. And we are so thankful that you give your time to volunteer in whatever avenue that may be, whether it's inside these doors on this campus or it's volunteering in our different ministries out in the community. We want you to know you're valued and that your work that you're doing for the Lord is needed And so we want us to understand that it tells us in Psalm 100, it says this, Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. And it tells us to do this, serve the Lord with gladness. When we serve, it should bring a gladness and a joyfulness about our heart that we are doing kingdom work, that we are investing in the lives of others. So we have a quick video for you this morning just to kind of show you all the different opportunities, even just explain more of of why we need volunteers to make sure that Fellowship Bible is the church that God has called us to be. Let's take a look at the screen this morning. 
serve him, serve them. So many different opportunities. As a matter of fact, this morning, if, if you don't realize, if you only come to the 1045 service, we have a 9 o'clock service as well. And in between services, we have our usher team and some others who have volunteered to make sure they go through the, the sanctuary, make sure that all the pieces of paper are picked up and all that great thing. And so I don't want you to think that I'm such a cool dude with technology. Somebody picked up my notes. They did such a great job of cleaning this morning and serving. So uh, just so you know, I'm not trying to be that guy. So, uh, But we're so thankful, so thankful that we have folks who who are dedicated in serving even in the little things that many other people might overlook. So we want to encourage you this morning to find your place at fellowship, the place you can volunteer and you can serve, because it says, serve the Lord with gladness. But also, why are we here this morning? Come before him with joyful singing and know that the Lord himself is God. Would you stand and worship our great God together today? strength will help 
He's our redeemer. He's our promise. He's our hope. He's everything uh, that we that we worship this morning. You know, the one thing that God can't do is He can't deny Himself. And His very character are those things: Redeemer, and Savior. He's our rescuer. He brought us out of the pit. It's just the nature of who he is and what he does. This is our God. Remember those walls that we call sin and shame. They were like prisons that we couldn't escape. But he came and he died and he rose. Those walls are rubber Remember those giants we called death and rain. They were like mountains that stood in our way. But he came and he died and he rose. Those giants are dead now. This is our God. This is who he is. He loves us. This is our God. What he does, he saves us. He bore the cross, beat the grave, let heaven and earth proclaim. This is our God, King Jesus.
to worship God. And just as we have sung in worship to the Lord, we're recounting and rehearsing his character and what he's done. That is the healthy pattern of believers, always thinking of what God has done, who he is, and fixing our eyes on Jesus. So let's continue in worship. I'm going to invite you to have a seat, and I'm just going to lead us in a time of prayer. So if you want to close your eyes and bow your heads, and just as we have sung in worship, now in the quietness of prayer, would you come before God and praise him, that he is the creator of heaven and earth, Exalt him, the living God of the universe. There is no one like him. Would you praise him that he's eternal, infinite, that he's all-knowing, that his power knows no end. Would you praise him that he is a God of justice? He is the one who's established absolute truth, right, wrong. And he's upholding justice. And one day, all justice will be satisfied. Would you praise him and thank him that he's a God of mercy and grace? How do we need this? Would you thank him that he is the embodiment of love. Unconditional love. For the times that you and I have not walked in faithfulness, we've sinned, we know it, the Spirit of God has brought it to our mind. Would you right now just confess any sin, attitude, actions, words you've done? Would you turn from these things, experience the cleansing that comes from knowing that you're loved unconditionally by Jesus. So would you bring these matters to him now in prayer? Would you thank him for grace? Unmerited favor. Would you right now just yield everything about your life to God? Would you ask him to fill you with his spirit? Would you ask God to cultivate in your heart just an overwhelming sense of his love, his goodness and grace to you? And would you ask God to give you the faith to truly take him at his word, to believe, to rest in and rejoice in his goodness, his grace, to live free. We're no longer shackled to sin. We actually can overcome temptation because of Jesus, our victory. And now would you bring your request before the living God? He is able. Bring these things to him. Talk with him about it. God, we thank you for our students who were on their mission trip and, and served you and represented Christ to people in need and to be able to show and share the love of Christ. God, we're grateful for each heart. We're asking that the seeds of the gospel would bear fruit. Only you can do this. 
And God, help us to be mindful that we are placed in this community so that we would represent you well as salt and light. How we go about our jobs, how we treat our families, that we are willing and wanting to to talk about you, about matters of eternal importance. So God, open up the doors, give us courage and faith. Lord, we come to you and we give you our lives. These offerings that we've presented to you, God, we give generously, graciously, even sacrificially, because we love you and we want to see your kingdom go forth. And these are just expressions of devotion to you who has given all things to us. So God, be worshiped in our praise, in our prayers, study of your word and fellowship. We ask this as we pray in Jesus' name.
we have just sung, let's just bow our heads as we bow our lives to him. Oh, Lord God Almighty, Jesus, you are holy. You are worthy of all of our worship. And we exalt you, the living God. We lay our lives before you. God, would you fill us with your spirit? May we walk in your ways. Give us a heart for you, to know you, to love you. And for those who have yet to truly trust you, God, we recognize that you have called us to be your ambassadors. And so as we open up your word, ask, we ask, Lord, that you would open up our hearts, that we would know your truth, we'd live in it, and you'd cultivate a deep love for you, for you are worthy. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated, and I want you to know it is really good to be back with you. Uh, so my name's Grant Call. If you're new here, I'm one of the pastors on staff. Uh, my wife and I were on vacation, went to Park City, Utah, and then uh, Karina was with me for about a week or so, and then she had to go back and kind of hold down the fort here in Waco. And the elders had given me about a week to have a study break to work on something that I am so excited to introduce to you. And you may have actually heard a little bit about this, but... What is about to take place starting September 3rd, we're going to do something we have never done as a church. We are going to go on a journey together, a journey to maturity in Christ. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to be studying the book of 2 Timothy. And so that is what we do here at Fellowship Bible Church. We take a book of the Bible, we break it down, we go passage by passage, and we want to see everything that God has for us in his word. But what is also going to happen is we are asking and inviting everyone in the church to join one of the many small groups that are getting started this fall. They'll be at all different times, different days, and we are going to introduce... 14 different skills that are really necessary for a fruitful and full life in Christ. And they're truly training tools to help you, equip you for ministry. And so I want to just cover what these are, just so that you know, because all during the month of August, you're going to be hearing about this. There'll be opportunities to get signed up for these small groups. In fact, even in your bulletin, there's a QR code that you can start getting information this week about all that's coming here. But let me just cover you with you the 14 skills that we are looking to train every single person in our church for. Uh, first of all, how to regularly replenish your life in Christ how to share your testimony in the gospel, how to walk in the spirit, how to disciple believers. Like, how do you actually do that? We want to train you so that you know how to do that and can do that. How to develop your life priorities so you're making good decisions. How do you develop doctrinal depth? How do you interpret and apply the Bible? This is so very necessary with where Christianity is today. We want to make sure that you know how to do that. How to develop Christ-centered character, so that not only do you know the truth, but you're living it, and it shows up in your character. How do you develop a biblical worldview? We want to show you how to do this and help you continue to establish a biblical worldview. How do you mentor others? How do you develop spiritual maturity? How do you actually develop and deliver a biblical message? And let me give you two more that we will be training you on. How to develop a personal mission statement and how to focus your faith on God and his truth. So we're going to go through all the book of 2 Timothy. Each passage will also then be used to highlight a particular skill that we see in that passage. And I have been writing and working on this for some time now, and we will be actually uh, having copies uh, for you 
the, you'll find out later in August when you'll be able to pick those up as you're a part of these groups. But what we'd like to do is see God bring transformation to our entire church, setting us on a trajectory of maturity, and want to make sure that every person at Fellowship Bible Church is equipped a saint equipped to do the work of the ministry and walk in the fullness of life in Christ. I'm really excited about this, as you can tell, and you'll be hearing more about this as we go through August, but I wanted to just introduce that to you today. So with that, I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke as we kind of continue our series here. Luke chapter 16 is where we're going to be this morning. Now, I'm not a mechanic, okay? But one of the things that I notice about my car is that when those little warning lights come on, okay, that always has my attention, okay? And, and rightfully so. So like uh, several months ago, my battery light started flashing on. And you're like, what? So I found out I had a defective battery and an alternator, that was failing, okay? So it was really good that I got that battery problem and my alternator problem resolved because I saw the warning, I responded. About a month ago, uh, I was doing a wedding out in the country, kind of like in the middle of nowhere, never even been there, took all these like rural roads to get there. And so Karina and I are coming back. It's late Saturday night. I also need to get ready for Sunday morning and bring you a message. And uh, that's all fine. I've, I've done that before and come back late. But this time, I was, it was a little stressful because the little orange gaslight was on the entire time, okay? And I'm like, how is this possible that this vehicle has no gas? And here we are, and we did not pass any gas stations. And so we're driving, and it's a little stressful. It's really late at night, and I'm thinking, how far can you actually drive? So I'm like, Karina, can you look it up? And so she's like looking in the manual. We're trying to figure out and guesstimate how much gas we might have left because I could just see myself stranded on the side of the road, okay? So that little light had my attention. I want you to know, God was gracious, and we made it to a gas station, and I didn't have to embarrass myself in front of the entire church the next morning. Okay, but then there's also, like, when that engine light comes on, or, like, right now, my oil light, that little oil can thing is on, and I know that I have 5% left, and, and I need to get to address that, but I'm at 5%, and it could go off anytime, but I know there's a warning sign, I need to take care of this. And we get that. We see those warning signs. We know... Time to respond, right? But you know where we're not so good at? Is when God is giving us warning signs that our heart is really not right with him. And that's what we see Jesus doing in Luke chapter 16, 16 beginning in verse 14. He is pointing out warning signs of a wayward heart. He is actually showing people who think they're right with God that they've totally, totally missed the mark. And so let me just show you what these warning signs are as Jesus unfolds them. Luke chapter 16, verse 14, the first one you're going to see is if you've got a devotion to money. Take a look. Verse 14, now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. So here we have the Pharisees. Uh, They were very religious, kind of the ultra-conservative in the Jewish faith. They wore all sorts of garments that identified themselves as such. And the Pharisees had a huge beef with Jesus. Jesus didn't fit into their pattern, wasn't following all their made-up traditions. In fact, Jesus was confronting them. And we see here in verse 14 that the Pharisees were lovers of money, and they were listening to what Jesus was saying, and they were scoffing at him. So what did Jesus say that got them all stirred up? Well, just look at the verse right before it. This is what he said. No servant 
can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And that was going to be a problem. Most of the Pharisees were quite well off financially, and they thought you could serve both God and money. It, it worked. And Jesus says, nope. There's only room in your heart for one God. Who is it going to be? The one true triune God of the universe, maker of heaven and earth? Or is it going to be your wealth and your money? And it's interesting. They are just outright disruptive. They're scoffing. You can tell in their body language, their sneers, their snide remarks. They're mocking Jesus openly and publicly. If you remember last week in Luke chapter 15... Remember what they were doing? They were grumbling, right? Oh, why does Jesus eat with sinners and sit down with them? What's, doesn't he know they're like unclean, unfit for the kingdom of God? What does he think he's doing? Remember that? Well, now they're just downright disruptive. And the, Jesus is confronting them that they got a huge problem in their life. They're devoted to wealth. I'll tell you, it's not wrong to have wealth. It's not wrong to even possess wealth. But it is wrong when wealth possesses you. How about you? How much time and devotion do you put toward your money, whether you have little or a whole lot? Does it occupy your thoughts? Are you always fixated and focused on that? Um, Your sense of security and well-being, is it really tied up in your finances? How come it's well with your soul? How come you think you're fine? If it's because, well, I I got a decent amount of money in my bank account right now. My mutual funds, I'm, I'm okay. I want you to know that's exactly how they thought. They were religious, but money was their God. And Jesus confronted them. And if you have a devotion to money, I want you to know that's a big warning sign that's going off flash, flash. Your heart is not right with God. Let me give you another here that we see in that exact same verse. Notice when he confronts them that they're lovers of money, what did they do? They were listening and they were scoffing at him. If you're despising Jesus, that's another warning sign. The word uh, uh, despise here, where they're, where they're actually mark, scoffing, the word scoffing means to turn up one's nose. And they could, you could see it in their body language and their words. I want you to know that if you're just mocking Jesus, his followers, you think that's just a bunch of garbage for the weak, you know, crutch for the feeble, right? If you choose to use God's name or Jesus to, as, a, as a slang, you know, word, like if you really want to emphasize or show how cool you are and you'll tread on anything, including God's name, I want you to know that is a huge warning sign that your heart is not right with God. Jesus goes on to give another one here. Take a look here, beginning in verse 15. And that is when you're developing a self-righteous attitude. So Jesus does respond as they're mocking him. And he does this because he cares. He loves and is going to give the truth. And verse 15, and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. Really important there. But God knows knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. You see, they were 
developing a self-righteous attitude. In fact, Jesus says, you justify yourself. You portray yourself as right with God. Kind of the epitome of, of the full life, of everything that you should be. And to put on a show, you, you justify yourself and you do it in front of others because you kind of get like esteem and value and you kind of got this like little club going here where you put on a little religious show and that's valued in esteem and it's all external. And Jesus says, you have missed it. You are looking on the outside. I want you to know that God, he looks at the heart, inside, internally, who you are. Your soul, God knows your heart. And outward uh, behavior, that explains all the Pharisees' actions, right? It also explains why Jesus is confronting them. And for the Pharisees, let me just tell you what this looked like here. They would um, be engaged in really long prayers. And these prayers uh, were not to God so much as kind of an opportunity for them to express all that they know and how holy they could come across. So they would have long prayers. Uh, They fasted, okay? And when they fasted, everyone knew, right? (sighs) I'd really like to have that, but I can't because I'm fasting. You know, they'd be dragging themselves around and putting on this big show, right? And then, of course, they uh, took the place of prominence at banquets uh, when they gave, and they did give money, though. These were showy contributions. Perhaps... Whatever they're going to give, like, they would go and convert that. To, like, I need as many coins as possible, okay? And they show up with their bag, and they're at the temple, and they're making their offering, and they're pouring that all in. And it's making a sound, and people are, like, looking like, whoa, what's going on over there? Oh, just giving an offering to God, okay? You know, I'm righteous. And you poured it all in. Oh, they were pretty good at that. And even their clothing was rather ostentatious, you know? They, they would wear garments, not functional, but definitely gave the identity that these were very religious people. By the way, that, all that, that still happens today, right? You wear these garments. It's not because they're comfortable, because you will stand out for all the right reasons, at least for a self-righteous person. And then they'd lengthen their phylacteries. They did all these things because they thought in doing so, that made them right with God. You see, they had taken the law of God, And they added a bunch of their own rules and they turned it into a legalistic code in which if you follow these things, you're right with God. You are a righteous person. And so you want to display you working these things out. And I want you to know that it is very easy to put on a religious show. Well, you see it, right? You know there's people that know when to play the Jesus card when it's appropriate, right? Oh, I'm around these kind of folks. Oh, yeah. oh these are the Christian folks. Oh, I can keep up with the best of them. I know exactly what to say. And so you, you put on that religious show. But of course, then you're hanging with your gang on Friday night, whole different code of conduct and behaviors and expectations and things flowing out of your mouth that are actually sourced in your heart. This idea that uh, you're developing a self-righteous attitude. I want you to know that's a huge warning sign. And Jesus confronts them. He says, God knows your heart. Oh yeah, that might be valued by people. But I want you to know, it's an indication. You are not right with God. Let me give you another warning sign that he gives here. Verses 16 through 18. And that you are distorting the intent of Scripture. 
Now, Jesus has their full attention at this point. And then he says this, verse 16, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. And since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. So now he tells them, listen, John the Baptist is kind of like this great dividing line. Before that, you had the law and the prophets. It was a way of referring to all of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, the law, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, and then the prophets. All of these, the law and the prophets, the scriptures, they pointed as an invitation to really know God. It shows the holiness of God. It shows us our sinfulness and our need for the Savior. And at the same time, the prophets and the law are pointing to one, a Messiah, who will be our salvation, who will fulfill all that is found in the law, all its requirements, All the ceremonial aspects are all going to be filled by one, a Messiah. And it shows us our sinfulness, calling us to repentance, true faith in God, not based on outward righteousness, but based on a heart that is broken before God and receives his holiness and his righteousness. And he says, you know, what's happened is there's been the Pharisees, excuse me, the law and the prophets, and they've been proclaimed until John the Baptist. John the Baptist has a message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he introduces Jesus. And remember, how does Jesus begin his ministry? The exact same way that John does. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The reign and the realm and the rule of Christ, of the king, why he's here. And Jesus said, I'm him. Do you remember that? Remember even when he's in the hometown of Nazareth? And he says, today, these scriptures have been fulfilled in your midst. I'm it. I am the king. And there are, there are many people that they truly were and were waiting for the Messiah. They believed God, his promises, and his word. And when Jesus arrived, they realized that he is the fulfillment of the messianic promises. He's the fulfillment of the law and prophets. And in that way, it's like they're forcing themselves, like they desperately want to be in. But not if you're twisting scripture. If you're distorting scripture, like the Pharisees and the scribes have become so good at, why, uh, not so much. In fact, you're mocking and despising Jesus. In fact, that's what they're doing. And so Jesus, just so they understand that he's not doing away with the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, the law and the prophets, he says, verse 17, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. He is saying that the universe will dissolve before the word of God fails. And one stroke of the law, it's the difference between the Hebrew letter Dalet, which has this small little hook on the top of it, and Resh, which doesn't. I mean, it is really small. You have to look closely, but you can see it. And what Jesus is saying is the law is going to be completely fulfilled. Jesus believes that it is 100% without error. It is inerrant. It is completely without error, and it is completely trustworthy. It is infallible. And God, who is upholding the justice in the universe, is fulfilling all of his law. And Christ, like, remember what Jesus said, Matthew 5, 17? Hey, listen, don't think that I came to abolish the law. It's like, you don't have to worry about the Old Testament. We're going to do away with that. No, no. Jesus said, I came to fulfill it. I came to fulfill it in detail. That is why he has perfect righteousness. He kept all of the law's demands. 
And he says, the law will not ever fail. But you see what had happened. Here's the kind of the interesting twist. Why the Pharisees, the scribes, guess what? They held themselves like, oh, we do believe the Bible. We're all about the scriptures. We have a lot of it memorized. We read them all the time. They're at every Sabbath. We, we want you to know that we are reading the scriptures. Every synagogue worship service, the law and the prophets, they were read. They actually saw themselves as experts of the word. But here's the twist. Why they had twisted scripture. They had come up with new interpretations so they didn't actually have to follow the word that they claimed to say they were experts in. And the ones that were said, well, definitely we hold to the word of God. And so that's a huge problem. When you're religious and you say, oh yeah, I believe the Bible, but I have twisted it to come up with new meanings, Jesus is confronting them with this warning sign. And he only gives them one example that is absolutely going to silence them and devastate them to show just how dangerous it is to play fast and loose with God's word. So he tells them, verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now here he's directly confronting them for their total disregard of scripture. You see, God is the one at the very beginning who established marriage. It is an institution given to the human race. It's not up for redefinition or interpretation. It is one man and one woman brought together for life. Like Jesus said, what God has joined together, let no one come between. You can read about it, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. They are now one flesh, right? They understood that. It couldn't be more clear. But if you're not a huge fan of God and his authority, you don't really like the clarity of scripture. It doesn't seem to fit in with what you want to do with your life or where the culture is going. What do you do? We got to come up with a better interpretation than what it clearly is saying. We don't like that. That, mm, mm, mm. In fact, this idea of being married for life, now there's just so many people out there, you know, there's got to be a different interpretation. Let's make one up. And so they did. In fact, they had a variety of them. Uh, uh, the Mishnah, which is kind of the oral tradition of the rabbis, they actually recorded, record these. So there were really two primary camps in Jesus' day, and these, the camp of Shammai and the camp of Hillel. They actually uh, were rabbis, leading rabbis, shortly before the time of Jesus. And they had interpretations, okay? So the camp of Shammai... They were saying, well, listen, okay, Moses had to regulate divorce in Deuteronomy 24, and he talked about, like, if you found something indecent in your wife, you could, you could divorce her. So let's define indecency. And they said, you know, I'm pretty sure it, you can only divorce if there's unchastity, like immorality, adultery. That would be the only way. So that was the house of Shammai. But there are a lot of folks like, well, eh, that's kind of what the text is saying. But we really don't like that. So there's a guy by the name of Hillel, and he says, oh, I'm a real smart guy. I got some real insight on this text, and you're going to like it. Let me tell you what this really means. He said, well, you know, that indecency, well, that would include even if she should spoil a dish. I'm quoting. Even if she spoiled his dish, 
Since it is said, because he is found in her indecency in anything, you can divorce her. Meaning, if she burns supper, you can just burn up that marriage certificate. It's all done, right? Wow, how would you like to live like that? And a lot of them like, boy, that works pretty well, right? Doesn't take much for her to make me unhappy, like how she's not cooking or not cooking right, right? And then the other guy in the house of Hillel, this, uh, this camp, was Rabbi Akaba. And he wrote, said this, quote, even if he found someone else prettier than she, uh, since it said, and it shall be fine, she should find no favor in his eyes. So here he's saying, hey, it's even better than that. You find someone that's prettier than your wife? She's kind of getting up there, and you notice this. Guess what? That's an indecency. You're justified by the Bible to go ahead and divorce her. And guess, of the two camps, which one do you think was most popular? Any, any guess? Come on. The no-fault divorce, right? The house of Hillel. And I want you to know, that worked very well for them to like, I can divorce and I can get married pretty much at will, at whim, and I'm following the Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures. Jesus confronts that directly head on with his statements. Now, Jesus does in Matthew chapter 5 and 19 give an exception, and that there is an exception for divorce and a biblical remarriage, and that is in the case of adultery. Also, Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when he talks about abandonment. An unbeliever abandons you or they abandon their role that may also have abuse involved with that. They have walked away from that role. Those would be the only two exceptions that are given in Scripture for divorce and remarriage. But what Jesus is doing is he's confronting them. He's confronting them on the fact that they were taking the Bible and twisting it to their own ends that work very well with their culture and their own personal desires. And this isn't the first time that Jesus did things like this. Mark chapter 7, verses 6 and 8, Jesus said, And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of, uh, of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart, there it is again, their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the precepts of men, Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. And I want you to know there has been a long history of people doing just that, saying that they believe the Bible, but in fact what they've done is they have come up with their own creative interpretations to completely turn away from it. In fact, in some cases, to do the exact opposite. That's been going on for now thousands of years. This isn't a modern trend. But let me just tell you kind of how this looks like today. This idea like, oh, yeah, we, we've got better scholarship now. We're, we're smarter than the folks back then. We have new insights. We, we really know the heart of God and what he really intended. And it just so happens to work really well with our culture. So, for instance, uh, the whole idea is of issues of human sexuality, uh, whether that be sins of sex outside of marriage or homosexual acts. I want you to know there's quote-unquote Christians that are actively involved in reinterpreting the Bible say, look, that's all okay. It's all about love anyway. Let me give you some others. Taking the life of the unborn in the name of personal choice. Women serving as elders and pastors. Even though the text is super clear, it's hard to be a husband of one wife and like, no, we've, we've got a better interpretation. The existence of hell. Few people will even talk about it now. Like, nah, 
doesn't, no, it's more imagery. It doesn't really exist. Or even the inerrancy of scripture. Opposing the true intent of God's word while at the same time saying that, oh yeah, I'm a big believer in the Bible. I want you to know that is a warning sign. It's dangerous. You're distorting scripture. When I was coming back from Park City, I got an Uber to ride from Park City to Salt Lake to the airport. I uh, had an Uber driver by the name of Garn. He was a, a retired guy, but he found, like, I need something to do with my life now that I'm retired. So he became an Uber driver. Really interesting fella. Uh, as we're talking on our little 45-minute journey, um, he told me that he had actually grown up in a Mormon family. I was very interested in that. Uh, but he he said, well, as soon as I got done with high school, like, I left it. Uh, he left it for two reasons. Uh, one, all the rules just I, I just, he couldn't do it. And two, it was really getting in the way of his fishing. And so he just, he walked away from it, okay? And he only kind of made appearances uh, like at different funerals. But it was interesting to kind of talk. And I'm very curious to learn more. And, and then he got on to like talking about their three levels of heaven. And there's the celestial heaven. And, uh, you know, and I know a little bit about Mormonism. I've, I've studied it. And I'm asking, well, tell me about that. And he's like, well, I'm, I, I want to be able to go there because you have to follow like everything they're saying, you know, and I, that's not, not obviously doing that. But he says, but I know that we're all basically all going to be in heaven. Okay. And I said, really? You think everyone's going to heaven? Well, not maybe if you did someone really, really bad, like the really evil people, maybe they're not in heaven, but pretty much everybody's going to be there. And that's all I want to do is I just want to be with my friends and just we're all together. And I said, well, you know, that's interesting. Uh, in the Bible, uh, Jesus actually talked more about hell than he did heaven. Warning of it, a place that you absolutely don't want to go. But Garn's interpretation and understanding, like, we pretty much all are going to go to heaven, I want you to know, that is pretty widespread. And you know who else thought they were absolutely going to heaven? Why, the Pharisees, the very ones that Jesus is confronting with these warning signs. They referred to heaven as the bosom of Abraham, this place of rest and great fulfillment and joy, security. And they thought they were going there for two reasons. One, they were related to Abraham, that bloodline. They were Jewish, right? And two, why they were following the law and their traditions according to their interpretation. And surely God was going to let them in on that basis. So Jesus tells them a story, a warning story for wayward hearts. And you find it beginning in verse 19. So when he, Jesus makes that statement in verse 18, just like it is right now, dead silent, I want you to know they were all like, what, who does this guy think he is? And then Jesus says, story time. And then he starts telling them. And now this, what we find here, I think it's a parable, but it is interesting. It would be the only parable that Jesus actually names one of the characters. But there, a parable is a device where you take something that is known and you lay it aside something that is, is not as well known. And there's things that occur in this parable like... Um, people communicating between heaven and hell, um, angels carrying away someone into heaven. Those things are not found anywhere else in Scripture except in this parable. And so I think this is really a story that is meant to drive home a huge point. It's a warning. And so let's take a look, verse 19. So now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And so Jesus breaks into this story, Talking about a rich man, okay? And when he's talking about purple, like it was really expensive, purple dye, you'd have to be extremely wealthy to wear purple. And he's got fine linen. And notice, this guy, he has arrived. He is joyously living in splendor every day. 
Okay? Uh, this guy is what we would call flamboyant. He's got money to burn. And so it's one party after another. He's got anything he might need. He is living it up. And the, and the Jewish mind, they're like, oh, absolutely. This man has really received God's favor. He must be a very good man. Look at all the things that he has. Whew, really good. And so you've got a rich man, but then um, notice, Jesus then says, and verse 20, a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores. So here we have this poor man. His name is Lazarus. Um, this is the uh, Greek translation of the common Hebrew name Eleazar, Lazarus. And you know what Lazarus means? It means whom God has helped. That's what the, that's what the name Lazarus means, whom God has helped. And Lazarus, whom God has helped, where do we find him? Well, we find him poor, verse 20, and he's laid at the gate of the rich man, and he's covered with sores. So he's laid there, meaning someone had to bring him there, probably dump him there, okay? And this, was, this is, you still see this today, especially in Eastern cultures. Those who are destitute, super poor, have some sort of great physical malady, you put them in public places where maybe someone is feeling rather benevolent and will give them some food or some money or whatever, and that's what you do. Lazarus isn't able to walk there himself. He's laid there. He's dumped at the gate. And, and man, this is, take that all in there. Did you see that? And he's covered with sores. And verse 21 gives us some more detail. Wow. He's longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. So not only find that he's destitute and he's poor and he's covered with sores, but he's also very hungry. And so, you know, this is how it is with the rich, right? We're not into leftovers. I know when we're done, we just clear the table, put in some buckets. We got some servants and they go out, they walk out of the house, they go to the gate and they just take that stuff and they throw it, right? And whoever might be there, they can kind of, you know, grab some food. Maybe someone was chewing on something. Like, I don't know. They pull it out of their mouth and spit it and throw it on the floor. Well, maybe whoever's real hungry, they can chew on that for a while. And if they don't want to chew on it, then that's what these dogs come. And when you see dogs here, uh, please don't get the idea that, like, thinking of your pet or kind of the American pet, you know, where, like you take your dog for grooming and, and you get the nails trimmed and all that sort of stuff, put a little bow. Uh, these were basically wild dogs, Okay. And notice what these dogs are doing. These dogs were coming and they were licking his sores. You get the idea. This is gross, but I want you to, you need to let this sink in a little bit. It's going to alarm your sensibilities. But these oozing sores, these dogs would come and lick them. And I want you to know that'd be really painful for Lazarus. You see his existence? Funny, he's got the name whom God has helped. Really? Here he is. And although the rich man and Lazarus really have nothing in common, they do have one thing in common. All of us have in common. You're going to die one day. And that's exactly what we see. Verse 22. Now the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. So he's poor and wretched, and he dies. And here is this imagery that Jesus is giving. I think this is a literary device here. And he's, he's saying, and he's like, transported by angels into Abraham's bosom. That's how they referred to heaven. 
To be in the security with Abraham, bosom is like one's chest, held, close, warmth, deep love, safe, acceptance. And it says he just died. There's nothing about like being buried or anything. Now, the Jews were generally rather compassionate uh, in cases like this, but they just kind of throw him in a pauper's grave. But they also had like the burning garbage dump, the, the Valley of Hinnom, and you could just take a body, especially one like in tough shape like Lazarus, just dump it on the fire heap out there. It'll burn up and we're done. He's dead. But notice also, uh, the, the rich man also died. Did you see that? Verse 22, and it says that he was buried. So the Jews had a rather elaborate rituals that came uh, with their burial, and a lot of money was, was used. So what they would do is he, he was buried. Uh, there would be professional mourners, so that's what they would do. You hired people to mourn and lament, and they could put on a pretty good show, right? And you're paying by the hour or something like that, you know, but they like, we got... We're still on the clock. Oh, and they're wailing and stuff like that. They also have burning all of this incense. And then, of course, there'd be some sort of elaborate tomb or this, you know, like a cave. I mean, there's a lot of work and attention. A lot of money went into this, right? It says that he was buried. And then notice what, what happens to these guys. We know that, like, um, Lazarus, why he's in Abraham's bosom. Things are going quite well for him, rather different than on earth. What about the rich guy? Well, verse 23 in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. In Hades. So um, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Sheol is translated into Greek, Hades. And in the Old Testament, Hades was the abode of the dead, whether you're righteous or unrighteous. But in the New Testament, Hades always refers to the place of judgment, of for the unrighteous, those who will not receive God, who will not trust him. And so we find out like, whoa, in Hades, you got this rich man. He's lifting up his eyes. He's in torment. And he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And, and in this story, as Jesus is trying to help them understand, verse 24, notice the rich man cried out and said, Father Abraham, do you see how he aligns himself with the Jewish faith? He's aligning himself with Abraham. Father Abraham even calls him. Have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. So you see this great judgment that this man is enduring. He's in agony. And this is a literary device, this communication, but Jesus is doing this to drive home a point. And you're like, well, what kind of agony is he in? Well, certainly there's the agony of the flames, this, this idea of eternal judgment. But it's, it's more than that. There's the agony of a conscience that was all these memories and opportunities that were lost when the truth was presented to you. You heard it all the time in the synagogue when the law and the prophets were read, and you rejected it. You didn't really believe it. And of course, the reality is that there's a permanent, irreversible separation you never emerge. I want you to know that we all are going to die, but that's not the end. You're either going to be like the rich man or like Lazarus. People today are like, oh, no, when you're dead, you're dead. It's just, yeah, that's it. 
Or, you know, we come up with things, well, what happens is your body decays, your soul goes back into nature, or the whole idea of like reincarnation, and maybe you come back as a panda bear, who knows, uh, other things. Um, you're, th- it's kind of the idea that, well, you know, uh, you just, you go, and it's just kind of one blissful party, and everybody's just going to go to heaven. Uh, that is not at all what scriptures present. In fact, he says, I'm in agony. And it's very interesting. It's like he, he sees Lazarus and he treats him like his lackey. Like, just tell Lazarus to do something for me. Clearly, he knows Lazarus. We don't know to the degree they have a relationship, but he knows his name. He knows who, he's, who he is. And it's like, even though he is in hell, nothing changes in his heart. This whole Catholic idea of purgatory, well, you'll kind of work off your sins and there'll be some reformation and changing. I want you to know that is foreign to the scripture. In fact, what we do have, imagery like Jesus is giving, is like nothing changes. You're just permanently separated from God on the basis of your choice. And you're, you know, some people wrestle like, are you serious? God sends people to hell? How could he do that? He's a God of love. I like that. Not the hell, hell bit so much. No, no, I don't like that. Well, let me just tell you, God has a holy love. He's upholding justice in the universe. And that is why he sent Christ out of love to die in our place to pay the penalty for our sins. He dies in our place, faces the judgment that we deserve so that we can experience the love that only he can give. It is a holy love. But make no mistake, you reject him, you reject these warnings, you're getting a picture of your future. So we have, have him, and here he's like, tell Lazarus, tell him to do something. Tell him, I need relief, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. I'm in agony in this flame. But notice how Abraham responds. Verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now... He is being comforted here, and you are in agony. Why is, is Lazarus in heaven because he was poor and dogs licked him? Is that why? Is that why he's in heaven? No. Do you remember what Jesus was talking about? The, since John, there's been the proclamation of the kingdom of God, where the king is here, the realm and the rule of Christ, of God the king. Lazarus is in heaven, not because he's poor, Lazarus is in heaven because he believes. He takes God at his word. The rich man, oh, he's of the line of Abraham. He's Jewish, but he is not of the faith of Abraham. He did not believe God and receive righteousness. He did it on his own. He lived his own party. He made it up as he went, and he reinterpreted the Bible to fit and accommodate his lifestyle. And I want you to know that can have disastrous, eternal effects. And so he's begging and saying, why don't you do this? And then notice what Abraham says in verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you, they'll not be able. And that none may cross over from there to us. It's just not going to happen. And then he said, well, I beg you, father, that you send him to my father's house. I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. So here he's saying, hey, listen, okay? It's almost as if he's, he's excusing himself, but you go ahead, you send Lazarus. It shows us that 
even his brothers would recognize Lazarus. Like, whoa, you're that, you're the really poor guy the dogs would lick. You're back from the dead and you got a warning message. It's even possible, not only they know Lazarus, but Lazarus testified uh, that you must believe in God and they wrote him off. And so what he's at, what, what is being asked here by the rich man is like, man, let's have a huge miracle. And you do that, guess what? My brothers, they will be warned so that they'll not come to this place of torment. But notice what Abraham says, verse 29. But Abraham said, you know what? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. All that they need is given in God's word. I want you to know that didn't sit too well with this man in the flames, this rich man. And so verse 30, but he said, no, you got it wrong, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. They'll have a change of heart, change of mind, a change of life. They'll repent. And Abraham said, verse 31, but he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. He's not, this rich man isn't at some sort of like eternal New Year's Eve party where we just all are gathering, having a good time. He recognizes the full plight of his eternal situation. He's almost excusing himself. You know, like, if there had been some grand miracle, I would have believed. And, and Abraham said, nope, that's not how it works. You have everything you need in God's word. This idea that what we really need now is some signs and wonders, then people will really believe, no. A, a faith built just on signs and wonders is not going to be a saving faith you need to believe, take God at his word and believe in the Messiah God has sent. They will not be persuaded. And it's interesting, in John chapter 11, you know, Jesus actually did raise a man from the dead. He had a name. What was his name? What's it? His name was Lazarus, right? Jesus raised a man as his name was Lazarus. Wait a second here. What's going on here? How did the Pharisees and the Jewish leadership respond? Well, you don't have to guess. Next chapter, John chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. If you will not believe by the word of God, you've got a hard heart. The power of the gospel given to us in the word is all that we need to experience salvation. But our culture today says this, the Bible, it's not enough. The resurrection, mm, mm, mm. Jesus came back from the dead. Did they believe in him despite all the testimony? Well, I want you to know a lot of folks then and today still absolutely rejecting him. How have you responded to the warning signs God gives you? Well, how do you do with your car when you see those warning signs? If you ignore them, I want you to know that's between you and the car. I, I warn you, I'm trying to help you. But how about the warning signs that God has given you that your heart is not right and maybe right now he's got your full attention? How are you responding? Let me tell you how you should. Recognize your dangerous condition. Repent of your sinfulness and receive the scriptures and the Savior they reveal. That's what you should do. There's a, an evangelist by the name of Rico Tice. He's British. Um, he made this statement, loving people means warning people. Exactly what Jesus is doing here. And he gives this story that he was once in Australia, and he was at Botany Bay, and they were at the beach, and 
he was going to go swimming in the bay. And so he's taking off his shirt and he's running and his friend goes, Hey mate, what do you think you're doing? He's like, I'm going to go fishing. Like what did you miss these signs? And he's like, I hadn't really noticed the signs. And he's like, Oh, you don't have to worry about anything. And like, he goes, listen, no, there are 200 Australians that have died from shark attacks. Uh, these signs are up for a reason, but you're old enough. If you think that these signs are up here to ruin your fun, you may as well go swimming in the shark-infested waters. On the other hand, if you think they're warning you to spare your life, you might not want to go swimming. Well, Rico decided that he would be wise and heed the warnings. And how about you? How are you doing with the warnings that God has given? Know this, our response to the warnings God gives reveals our place in eternity. Let's pray. Lord, Thank you for your word, almighty God. You have given us what we need in the scriptures. It is the power of God for salvation to those who will believe, Jew and Gentile. So for someone who is here today who has never trusted you, would they pray with me now and say, God, I turn from myself and my selfishness and my sin. And today I believe, I believe in Christ. I receive salvation by virtue of what Jesus has done on the cross. God, lead me and fill me. Thank you for forgiving me. And Lord, for all of us who do know you, help us to walk in the loveliness of who you are. Help us to be recognizing that we are salt and light in this community, that we have the privilege of not only rejoicing in our salvation, but to share your goodness with others, your gospel, your grace. So thank you for the clarity and the power of the word. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Grant. Let's stand as we respond to that message, as we turn our hearts to God and sing these words. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss The Father turns His face away As wounds which mar the chosen one Bring many sons to glory
pray that we are, as a congregation, so thankful that we can sing a song like that and hear from His Word a message about warning signs. Well, the great thing is this morning, if you're in this room or you're watching online, you have heard the warning sign. And there will be a day where each of us will stand before the Lord. And for those who have believed, we will answer that we heeded the warning sign, that we repented and gave our life to Jesus Christ. We placed our faith and trust in Him, and God will say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. There will be others who will give every reason except for Jesus. Except for Jesus. And they had not heeded the warning sign. Maybe this morning for the first time you heard the truth of the gospel and that Jesus loves you, that he died for you, that he wants to enjoy life with you, not only here on this earth, but for all eternity. If you repented of your sin, placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you've called out to him this morning, the promise in his word in Romans is that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so maybe you made that decision. And if you did, we have a prayer team in the back. We would love to encourage you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to celebrate that decision in your life because it's the greatest decision you'll ever make. We'd love to give you some resources to help you in your newfound faith. This morning, maybe you're already a believer. Praise the Lord. Boy, we have so much more to be urgent about in sharing the gospel. Each day that we wake up, it's a day closer to the return of Christ. And so we must go forward. Give the warning signs. Allow the Holy Spirit to work and watch others repent, believe, and come to know Him. Let's be gospel and truth tellers this week. Can't wait to see you next Sunday. God bless. What a great message we got to hear this morning. If this is your first time with us, would you please go to our website at fellowshipwaco.org and under the Get Connected tab, would you fill out an online guest card? That way we have a record of your visit. We'd love for someone on staff to let you know about any other opportunities that you might be interested in to get involved as well. Anyway, thank you so much for joining and have a great rest of your week.